This episode is brought to you by CRPS Warriors Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seat. The show is about to start. Hey guys, what's up? This is Phoebe. This is Mike. This is the Mike and Phoebe show, episode 20, airing on April 22nd, 2023. Now in today's episode in the CRPS Warriors Foundation series, we are talking with Dr. James P. Wilton. Dr. Wilton is board certified foot and ankle surgeon and lower extremity peripheral nerve surgeon dedicated to excellence in the care of the medical and surgical conditions of the foot, ankle, and lower extremity nerve-related injuries. Now, Dr. Wilton is also a humanitarian advocate, developing and directing directing ongoing medical and surgical mission trips in South America for pediatric and peripheral nerve surgery. And Dr. Wilton is also a member of the American Society for Peripheral Nerve and the Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Wilton. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Great to be here. Yes, we're so happy that you're able to join us today for this episode. Now, um, we got some really great topics to talk about. So how did you get started treating chronic pain patients? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, as I tell my children, like a certain non-linear foot and ankle surgery, and we didn't do a whole lot of peripheral nerve in my training. We just dabbled in it just a little bit. And I would see patients over about the first 15 years of my career that were kind of outside my diagnostic box. They, the symptoms just didn't fit what I was seeing. And uh, around 2001, uh, I learned of a plastic surgeon at Johns Hopkins who was teaching a course in peripheral nerve surgery, Dr. Lee Dellen, who is a very well-known surgeon around the world. He's written hundreds of articles and textbooks and just an amazing uh, academic uh, physician. So I went down and I took his course um, and it just opened my eyes to say, wow, you know, I wish I would have had this in my residency. We just didn't see this. And then I joined the association as soon as I took the course and I started to meet some really super uh, invigorating people in my field in foot and ankle surgery, like Dr. Bregman, who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, Dr. Steve Barrett and some other guys, and um, boy, it just lit the fire under me, and then I just took a lot of additional work, and um, it just, uh, my linear path in foot and ankle surgery certainly took a tangential turn at that point, and that was around 2001. That's amazing. And um, in your bio, you told me that you do some mission work uh, for medical in South America. Did you want to tell me about that? How did you start and when did you start it? And where is your uh, medical mission work? Where is it at now? Sure. So 2001 was this changing year in my life. Um, And I had taken the course with Dr. Dellen in Baltimore in July of that year. And then I was scheduled to go in September on, I think, September 14th or 15th for my first medical mission trip doing uh, pediatric work. I was doing club foot corrections. Uh, A friend of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon at my hospital said he had been down the year before. He said, Jim, 
we have all these little kids with foot problems down here. Why don't you look at coming down the next year? Well, we all know what happened the Monday of 2001 and September 11th. And so our, our trip was canceled. Obviously there was no air flights anywhere. So I went the next year in 2002 and I joined a, a foundation, um, project perfect world that does uh, pediatric surgery. And I was kind of like their foot guy. So I was doing club foot corrections in Ecuador in a city called Guayaquil. It's about 4 million people. It's a coastal city on the Western side of, uh, uh, Northern South America. The ability to get into the country was facilitated through a wonderful woman, sister Annie Credidio. She's a, a nun in the uh, BVM order who runs a foundation down there for leprosy patients, for Hansen patients. So she would diplomatically get these teams into the country because of her connections. And I would go over and visit her patients at her, her little um, inpatient treatment facility. And I said, boy, there's a lot of peripheral nerve things going on here. And I had just started doing my peripheral nerve work. And that just changed my life in the, our surgical team that, that I run. We, we stopped doing the pediatric reconstructive work. And we dedicated ourselves to doing peripheral nerve surgery after 2002 to the, the leprosy patients. And come from all over, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, They when they hear that we come down. So um, that's just you know one of these non-linear things you meet somebody and it opens a door here and then that opens a door there and we've been going down since that time and i've made about 17 trips so far we had to stop for covid because the hospitals were just overwhelmed with patients and they really couldn't have outside surgical groups come down and we had to cancel our trip this year because of some issues with crime and um, the country's having a really hard time with um just uh, lawlessness and whatever. I'm not sure the reason why. So we're hoping next year to resume our mission trips. I go down twice a year. That's amazing. And so these mission trips, uh, they're covered by um, the churches down there, or is there a, a separate international foundation that um, you're a part of? No, it's called GoFundMe. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so we fund ourselves. We're self-funded. We don't, we don't take any money. We What we do is we cover the cost of um, airfare um, and hotel, and we pay the way for our nurses that go, but all the doctors that go, I'm like, guys, you know, just pony up. To, we're going to pay for ourselves and all the medicines that we use. And then we try to raise money for the patients because most of the patients that we operate on live um, in the country regions, not in the urban areas. And they work in the rice paddies and the banana fields, and they only make a couple dollars a day. And for them to be out of work, it's pretty catastrophic. So we try to make up their little salaries that they make and give them a little extra to take care of their family. So, but we just sell fun through GoFundMe. That's amazing. And I know that the series um, is about CRPS Warriors Foundation, but I would love to, if you mind um, telling the uh, the people that's listening, the um, GoFundMe website that they can go to in case they want to um, check it out just to read this, the backstory of it. And if someone wants to contribute, what's the fund? Well, yeah, it, um, it, I haven't, I haven't set it up for this year because our last trip was right before COVID. But the foundation that we work through is the uh, Padre Damien Foundation in Guayaquil, Ecuador, and they have a website and a and a page and anything that is donated to them. They're a five hundred one c three. So I'm in the process now of, of forming a five hundred one c three for our surgical team, so that so that we can do that. But we we accept donations through the 
Foundation, the Padre Damien Foundation, and they're easy to find on the web. That's fantastic. I'm glad that you mentioned that. So um, people can look that up online if they want to check that out. That's amazing. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful foundation. They take about anywhere from 60 to 80 inpatients, and that, that fluctuates, and they treat about 500 people outpatient. And um, but leprosy is, you know, there's a million new cases a year in the world. And um, there, Brazil has a huge amount, um, India, China. Uh, it's a bacterial disease, and uh, it's, it's, it's hard to eradicate. Um, it's easy once you get it to get rid of it. Um, but unfortunately, the patients are so poor that they can't get in for medical treatment for the, the one to three years of oral antibiotics that they need to get rid of it. Wow. And that's good that you're talking about that to educate the people about that, too. Now, um, I was reading from your bio. Do you want to tell me about your professional society's memberships, um, what positions you held, and what teaching and administrative positions you've also held in the past? Oh, sure. So the Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons is our American group of uh, predominantly foot and ankle surgeons, podiatrists that have uh, taken additional training uh, through our courses. I developed and I run the basic peripheral nerve surgery course for the foundation. And we take uh, board certified surgeons and then we have a pretty intensive three-day course uh, where they learn um, the techniques the, how to diagnose these problems because that's a huge issue because we just didn't really learn that in our residencies and it's still not taught to a great extent on the diagnostic acumen to you know really adequately look at these patients and come up with a great working diagnosis it's just not taught so um, I run that I used to run the advanced course and I stopped doing that in 2016 because I only have so many weeks in the year and it was just it was too much so some, I handed that off to some other surgeons, and they've done a great job since then running that. So in the association, I was past president in 2006, and um, I was the treasurer forever because I didn't get out of the room fast enough, so they kind of tagged me with that, which was kind of a fun position, you know. So anyway, um, and I'm also on the board of directors of that association. Um, I just joined the Association for Peripheral Nerve, and I think I'm the first podiatrist that was admitted to this uh, international organization. It's a wonderful group of just top-level academic plastic surgeons and um, peripheral nerve surgeons, and you just—it's uh, just—it's just a whole other level of academic uh, knowledge and brilliance that these guys bring to the world. They come from all over the world to lecture. I had my first meeting uh, in Miami in January, and it was just unbelievable. This—the stuff you, you learn from these people. Um, and then I'm a member of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons, which is our traditional uh, surgical group for uh, podiatrists. Very nice. That's a extremely long list. That's it's very good that you're involved yeah. in so many boards and involved in so many um, teaching positions in your um, in your experience. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. And yeah, I'm also on the I'm also on the board of the Damien Foundation. I'm their surgical missions director. So I, um, I I didn't want them to have to worry about lifting a finger. All I do is tell them the dates that we're, we would like to come down and if it's okay with them, and then they arrange all the patients, um, their transportation and, and all that. And then I arrange the, the surgeons. I pick the teams and the nurses and the anesthesia providers. And then I, I do that for the foundation. Oh, very nice. Yeah, very, very good. good. 
And I did have a question about your mission work. Um, I know we're going back to that question. Uh, how long do you usually stay there for? And how many surgeries do you do a day? You know, is it on an average, uh, you do like two or three, or you have to, you're able to crank them out a little bit? You know, how does that work? Yeah, so so I do a screening trip where I will um, take some surgeons down and I like to take new surgeons that have just taken the course because they can really develop their diagnostic examination, examining these patients. And we'll go through about 130 patients in three days. Wow. And we'll find the, we'll find the patients that are acceptable candidates for upper and lower extremity peripheral nerve surgery. So that's one trip of about three days. And then within a three to four month period, the patients will have a medical clearance. We have an internist at the foundation who um, uh, gives a medical clearance to all these folks and gives them lab work, chest x-rays, whatever they need, you know, full, full internal, you know, medical examination. Um, and then we go down for a surgical trip. We fly down on a Saturday. So we get in late Saturday night, Sunday, we do a screening with the surgeons that I bring down. I try to bring four or five other surgeons and these, I try to bring guys in our group that are pretty seasoned guys because it's not like working at home. You don't have all the gizmos and gadgets that you need in the OR. We bring our own instruments, um, but I need guys that can think out of the box, you know, when things aren't exactly right. Okay, well, we can do it this way. So we do take some new surgeons, um, but we don't have them in a primary lead as the primary surgeon. They'll be like an assistant surgeon. And we'll operate Monday through Friday. We have two operating rooms, and we try to do four cases a day in each room. Uh, the turnover time in the hospitals down there is abysmally slow. It's not as fast as the United States. So that's what limits our cases. But in a five-day period, we can um, we can see upwards of 40 patients. Sometimes we'll hit 50. And when we operate on patients, if we're if we can, we like to operate on one arm and one leg at the same time. So we'll have our hand surgeons doing the upper extremity work, and then we're doing the lower extremity work on the same patient, and it works out great. So we can we do hundreds of procedures uh, when we're there. When you add up the forty patients and the two limbs and the number of nerves that you're working on, so it's it's worked out very well. And our complication rate is as good or better than in the United States for, um, we just don't see post-operative infections. We don't have um, the normal surgical complications that you would expect in a routine way. So we're very pleased with that. And I think that's because of the talent of the surgeons we bring down. That's amazing. Wow. And that's so many patients to see. And that's good that you guys have a routine, you know, down with the, the hand surgeons and you guys. So that's amazing. You guys work together so well. Yeah. And and we're really we're really focused. We're just we're doing what we do very well. We're not trying to fix everything. So mm-hmm. uh one year I brought my orthopedic partner down who's a foot and ankle orthopedist and you know there's you know a hundred different procedures he could be doing on patients and you know he had to bring all the instrument sets and this and that. We are very focused. We're just doing what we do in terms of peripheral nerve work and because of that, um you know, it's kind of like Southwest Airlines. They fly the same plane. Right. So their maintenance costs are way down compared to American or Delta because it's just they're doing the same thing all the time. So with our teams, we're doing the same thing on the same patients. We will vary. 
and if we see some some folks that need some traditional orthopedic type work, we'll fit them in the schedule. But that's not our primary goal. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. What uh, made you want to actually get into this line of work? You know, that's a great question. I think looking way back, uh, my father uh, was an internist. And um, he, back in the day, he was employed by the hospital. This is going way back in the 60s and 70s. And he had left private practice and then was hired by the hospital. And he worked all the time. This was before the era of hospitalists. So he he worked all the time. So growing up as a child, you know, I, I saw my dad, but um, infrequently, he was always called into the hospital. And it was funny, one of his best friends was a foot and ankle surgeon. And this guy, you know, had his weekends off. He, you know, was with his kids. He was doing this and that. And then when I was in high school, he had me go around to all of his friends to see what their work was like, you know, the general surgeons, the orthopedic surgeons, you know, whoever. And then when I spent time with this gentleman, I was like, Dad, there's no comparison. Like his family life is so much better. <laughs> and that was literally that was literally how I, I, I picked my profession. Wow. Oh wow. So, yeah, <laughs> there you go. But now, but that that only lasted one generation. My daughter's an internist now, she's a hospitalist, so she reverted back. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's it's uh, you know, generally the same. <laughs> Some sort of yeah, so, uh, so her little girl baby she'll grow up to be a foot and ankle surgeon. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta let the, the grandkid know. Okay, start out start out young. Start them young. <laughs> I'm going to do the slow drip method. <laughs> I like that. That's very nice. <laughs> now, uh, Mike also had a question about um, the lectures that you do. Yeah. Um, on all the lectures that you do, um, you, you not only do them here in the United States, but I'm sure you do them in other countries. Can you tell us right. a little about the lectures? Uh, yeah, sure. So, Boy, once you start to speak, then you can kind of speak all over. So I have spoke at a lot of the big meetings, the national meetings in the United States for the national associations and the big state societies and things like that. And then around 2006, I was asked by uh, uh, one of the big companies that make spinal cord implants um, to be their spokesperson for the use of spinal cord implants in the treatment of chronic pain or CRPS for foot and ankle surgeons. So I traveled all around with them. We went all through Canada, the United States, and did that. And then I lecture down in South America um, at some of the medical schools when I'm down there and the hospitals to the physicians on the work that we do. And we actually trained one of the plastic surgery fellows. And now he's the peripheral nerve guy for Ecuador. It's great. He's a young guy. He's on fire. I mean, he, this guy does everything, but um, he is so committed to helping patients with chronic pain. And I actually just got him to join the CRPS Warrior Foundation. So that's exciting. So now they have a Ecuadorian surgeon to help down there. Very nice. And um, talking about CRPS Warriors Foundation, now how did you um, get started with them? And um, do you have any, you know, patient um, stories that you want to share with us, you know, generic, obviously not sharing the names, but um, how did you start with the sure. CRPS Warriors Foundation? Well, my my dear friend, Dr. Peter Bregman in Las Vegas, um, he put out a, a notice to the surgeons in our professional society about this group. And so I looked them up on the web and I this is this is really pretty interesting. So then um, I contacted Deb and um, it was, that was, you 
know, a month ago or two months ago. And I just, I joined the group. I said, this sounds like something I'd really like to do. In the course of my practice over the last 20 years or more treating chronic pain patients, um, it became apparent that, you know, the folks with CRPS were kind of relegated to, you know, some, a lot of bias, you know, well, you know, we can't do anything for you. You just, you know, here's some oral pain meds and, you know, it's, it's, it was a very difficult flight for them. And some of the really enlightened peripheral nerve surgeons, like you know, Dr. Lee Dallin and some other people, Susan McKinnon at St. Louis and some other people that write a lot, really talked about the role of peripheral nerve surgery, um, helping these patients with CRPS when you can. Um, and so then we, I just started to integrate that and I would see patients in the practice and I actually worked with a, a of general surgeon, uh, we did a lot of work with this um, up until his retirement uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but you know, we still continue to see these patients because we're an outlet for care that really isn't offered to them uh, through their treating physicians or their pain physicians. So now, do you have any other um, patients that you've seen in the past that have CRPS that really kind of stuck out with you? Yes. Um, boy, there's a ton. Um, we had a patient. This was really interesting. He was a soldier in um, Iraq. And he had, it was near his 17 or 18 year mark. And he was injured. He was driving his Humvee. They hit an IED. The Humvee blew up and he was blown out of the Humvee and landed on a hill and was sent to Germany for, you know, surgery, whatever, but he had chronic pain and they actually, he had to leave the army at 19 years prior to the 20 year retirement mark or whatever. So I don't know how this fellow was referred to me, um, but I examined him and he it was very interesting. His wife said, you know, he can't sleep at night. He's got chronic leg pain, but the only time he can sleep is if he takes two small boards puts them on either side of his leg and then wraps an ace bandage around it like a tourniquet. And then that helps the pain for him to, to go to bed. <clears throat> and then he was on pain medications and other medications. So on examination of this guy, he had a nerve entrapment just below his knee. So we, we, I said, you know, I think this would help if we release the nerve and, you know, get rid of any scar tissue or do whatever. So we operated on him on a Friday <clears throat> and, you know, called him Friday night. He was doing fine. So his wife called the office on Friday and one of my staff members said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is on the phone. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. You know, what happened? And I get on the phone with her and she's crying. And I said, is everything okay? You know, how's your husband? And she said, he has no pain. Oh. And I said, oh, well, I mean, are you, I said, are you okay? You're crying. And she said, no. She said, this is the first time in three years he's able to sleep and he has no pain. And I said, oh, that's great. So that's like my outstanding story. You know, it's, you know, not everybody's like that, obviously, but it was really pretty impressive. Um, and he had been through the military system, pain clinics, you know, he had all the diagnostic testing, EMGs, MRIs, things like that. And it just, it, it wasn't picked up because the people weren't looking for this particular type of nerve injury. So that, that was one of my, my, my better cases. Um, we have a lot of patients. We had a fellow who, uh, had a severe leg injury and he had to have a blow knee amputation. And 
he had uh, chronic regional pain syndrome, CRPS. And, but on examination, he had some problems with the nerves where they had been cut and they had formed scar tissue adhesions. And he was in a tremendous amount of pain on tremendous doses of opiate medications. And uh, my colleague and I operated on him and revised the peripheral nerve work. And we dropped his opiate use by about 75%. Wow. Now, we didn't, cure, we didn't cure his pain, but he got off of 75% of a huge dose of oral narcotics. And so yeah. for us, that was, that was, a, that was a, a pretty good outcome. Yes. So and there's just people around that, you know, when, when you get to the point where you have regional pain syndrome, it's not like you have a healthy nerve that you've injured. These nerves have been injured in the past, and there's a big time period before they get to you, and you start to get to see secondary effects where the nerves actually, the threshold for irritating them goes way down. So if you had to, you know, press really deeply on a nerve, say like on your ankle, you might have to press pretty hard to even feel it. These folks, you can touch the skin and they have pain. Their threshold is so low and that's why they're in such pain. And one of the problems with the CRPS group is if they're on narcotics, the narcotics over a period of time lower the threshold for pain. So even though they block pain, the threshold goes down. So it's, it's like a double-edged sword. Right. So. Yeah. Now, so. yes, um, I've seen online also, you know, uh, Mike and I were just newly in uh, being aware of what CRPS does. And we're very new to the CRPS Warriors Foundation family. We just got in probably the last like two months, really. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. as soon as we basically started the podcast. It was a few weeks before that we um, were in contact with Deb. We, the founder, um, and we love her. She's an amazing lady, very inspiring. So now I'm trying to understand more about what CRPS does and the cause of it. And I've seen online that uh, CRPS uh, can spread very easily when um, a patient already has CRPS. Now, um, if you can explain to me, um, how does that happen? Uh, is it due to emotional stress or is it because of the injury it's being more um it's getting worse you know uh if you can can you explain to me uh how does that get worse like that how does it spread i will i will open this discussion with saying it's poorly understood Hmm. just to start out it's it's not like you break a bone you take an x-ray and you oh you did this okay Mm -hmm. um the development of crps and then the progression um of the disease it's not well understood, but there's a lot of commonalities among patients that have that. There, are, there can be some psychosocial issues with patients. I've seen that. But I believe, and I think a lot of people on the peripheral nerve surgery side, the treatment, the treat CRPS patients believe that it's a distinct injury to a sensory nerve. Hmm. And what happens is that the nerve is injured, um, it adheses with scar tissue or something happens to it after the injury. And instead of it just healing, it just keeps firing and it's firing. And if it does that long enough, um, it can proceed up because the nerves are one cell. So if you have a nerve trunk, say in your foot, that little nerve trunk, the cells in that say you have like 5,000 nerves in that little trunk. 
they go all the way up to your lumbosacral area, and that's each of those is still one cell. It's not like they they connect all along the way. So the transmission rates for pain is pretty quick uh, with these nerves. So when you have this um, stimulation of the nerve that doesn't heal in the normal time frame of 30, 60, 90 days, and it just keeps firing, um, the thresholds go down, as I was saying, for the nerve to feel pain now. So movement of the joint or the area or whatever can create more stimulation along the nerve. There's changes that occur up in the cell body, up in the spinal cord, um, in the lumbosacral area, in the low back. And the nerves, some of the nerves go into the cell body and then they, they connect to a nerve and they go directly up the spinal cord. But about 10 to 15% of the nerves connect with nerves that go on the opposite limb. So that's why it's thought that some patients can develop, you know, if you have this in your right leg or ankle or knee or whatever, you can get it in your, your other leg. And then you can also have a problem that's called central sensitization, where the nerve kind of becomes programmed all the way up to the lumbosacral area and then up the spinal cord. And then if it's there long enough in the pain centers in the brain. So it's kind of like having an Excel spreadsheet developing your brain that keeps this thing going. So even if, say, you had a patient that had an amputation with COPS, they still have the pain in their brain because this this pain program is going. That's that's one of the problems with this. Um, So the the nerve can actually change instead of just being like a little electric cord that gives a signal, a pain signal up or... Um, and we're talking sensory nerves, not the motor nerves that work muscles. It's very complex, all these interactions and the different levels of interaction where the nerve is injured, the nerve trunk up the leg, the lumbosacral area, the spinal cord pathways that go up to the brain, and then the pathways in the brain. It's a very complex series of events. And the hallmark is the earlier you can treat these patients so they don't have these changes up in the brain, the better the results that you can get. If this is a long-standing problem, treatments are can become very ineffective, say like in the foot or lower leg. Wow. Does this uh, become worse for people as they get a lot older? In some patients, it can. It can spread. Um, and, you know, so... You run the gamut of, in some people, it resolves. You know, it used to, you know, back in the day, they'd say, well, let's wait five years and see, you know, it's going to go away. Well, it doesn't always do that. Um, but some patients resolve. And some patients, you you injure the nerve. They have some pain, it goes away. That's fine. Some patients, you injure a nerve or nerves from an injury, an ankle sprain, a fracture, you had surgery, you know, whatever you're going to have happen to the soft tissue. And then they develop this just chronic irritation where you really shouldn't have it for a variety of reasons. And then they go into developing the chronic regional pain syndrome. You know, and they have the chronic regional pain syndrome one and two and all this. But I think the hallmark is that these this process develops from an injury to one or more sensory nerves. And if it's left unchecked or not diagnosed or not treated, um, that's that's when this stuff spreads. And in the human condition, 
there's other factors that play. There's the psychosocial that play with this. And um, so it's, it's very complex. Every patient is different that presents with this. It's not a cookie cutter diagnosis and it's not a cookie cutter treatment plan for these patients. Every patient's different. True. Right. Yeah. And uh, have you seen a, you know, I guess an age, age range where this, you know, becomes more, uh, more pronounced in people? You know, uh, um, well, I'd have to say people that are more active are probably more likely to get it because they're going to hurt themselves. But the youngest patient I ever saw uh, was a 16 year old boy in high school. Oh, and he had an ankle sprain, and we didn't get to see him until about 18 months after his injury. And he had a um, an adhesion or scarring of a nerve on the front of his ankle. And it just wasn't diagnosed by anybody. It's like, well, you got ankle pain, this is that. But when we would give diagnostic blocks, his pain would go away. So um, so we, we did surgery on him, but his recovery took a lot longer. If you have a patient that has a nerve entrapment or whatever and you operate on it, generally the, the results are pretty quick, um, if not instantaneous. You take the pressure off the nerve and they do great. People have CRPS if you're, freeing up the nerve from scar tissue or a tight tunnel that it's in, or if you're physically removing the nerve, um, their healing is delayed because the whole system's kind of rewired to be agitated. So it takes it a while for it to calm down. So the thought is, or some patients will actually remove, if we know there's one specific nerve that's really bad that is scarred in from previous surgery or, you know, some type of injury, and we'll, we'll identify where we should remove that nerve and we remove it. What we're in essence doing is we're stopping that flow of information back up the nerve to the spinal cord level and then the spinal cord tracks to the brain. So over a period of time, those pathways that can develop in the spinal cord and brain can revert back to a better position. Nerves are very, there's a plasticity with nerves and they they can learn and the pathways in the brain can change over time, which is very good. That's why some patients that have spinal cord injuries, they can relearn some pathways for to regain function in hands or legs or feet. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. So is that the uh, diagnostic uh, block that you were just talking about? Well, diagnostic block tells us it's, it's our, like, now I tell patients, I'm the electrician. I have to find the wire that's bad in the wall. You know, your light's not work. Your light on the wall is not working right. So I got to find out which electric cord is. So we're going to like fiddle with each one. So we we will do very small volume diagnostic blocks along a nerve to see if that is part of the pathway. In a patient that doesn't have CRPS, when we do that, it's it's instantaneous pain relief. The the tricky part is in patients with CRPS, you can block a nerve that's bad. And it's been longstanding. They can still perceive pain in the brain because they have that pathway going. It's all the way in the brain now. So we have to do repetitive nerve blocks to see in a true patient that has CRPS if this is going to be benefit. I see. You know, and every time Mike and I, we um, talk to the doctors and we've talked to um, a lawyer, you know, one of our first uh, interviews uh, after Deb was with a lawyer who does um, CRPS uh, patients work. So every time we talk to new people, we get educated about what CRPS does. And we also educate, we get educated on um, everyone's stories, you know, the 
the doctor's stories, oh, yeah. stories. Yeah. Uh, it really touches our hearts. Now, I had another question. Um, this is outside of the questions that you sent me, but um, what is your goal um, when you're you're a new resource to CRPS Warriors Foundation? So what is your goal in terms of uh, being in the uh, association here uh, in terms of um, contributing? Are you wanting to uh, do some lectures or you want to obviously spread the word to other um, doctors and surgeons uh, regarding a proper treatment for CRPS? Well, I, I, you know, in all, in all honesty, you've been a member of the foundation longer than I have. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very new to this. <laughs> but I would have to say all the above for what you said. Number one, I'd like to be a resource for patients in my geographic area in New England. Um, there, there isn't a lot of people that do the work that I do. We have a couple guys in Boston doing it, but that's about it. So number one, I'd like to be a resource for patients if I could help them. And then if I can help the society in any way, you know, to come out and speak or give lectures or whatever, I'd be happy to do that. That is amazing. So where uh, exactly are you located at? Um, I'm in New Hampshire. Oh, New so Hampshire. Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I work out of a, a wonderful a little critical access hospital, Cottage Hospital in Woodsville, New Hampshire. We're right around the 45th parallel in the White Mountains. It's it's wonderful. It's a great little little community hospital that's, um, you know, does a super job. And I, I just love working there. Oh, it's got to be beautiful, but cold. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's in the 40s today. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Southern California. That's cold. That's super cold. <laughs> <laughs> so now, do you want to tell us, Dr. Wilton, um, your hospital name, if uh, people have questions, if um, they want to be able to reach you, or um, do you want to give out maybe your contact information? Sure. Um, I, I work at the two hospitals, and... It is, um, I have to say, the, the, we do have internet addresses at each hospital. It is um, challenging at best because we use two different systems. And I have an Android phone, and one of the hospital systems doesn't work with an Android. And it's kind of a pain. But So my, I just, my regular email is just jpwilton at gmail.com, and I get that anywhere. Awesome. That's the easiest, that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Yes. Now, do you have any other stories you want to share with us or anything else you'd like to share with the listeners um, while we have you here uh, regarding CRPS? Yeah, we, we saw a chronic pain patient um, in the Hansons group. Um, she was a, a 18-year-old woman, and she had a little baby, and she couldn't hold her baby because of the pain in her arms and hands, and she was having a difficult time walking. So we, she couldn't comb her hair. Um, so one of our uh, hand surgeons that, that was going down with me at the time, I said, let's, let's really put her at the top of the list. Let's really work her up and, and do whatever. So I operated on both of her legs and ankles and feet, and he operated on both of her arms. This was one year and then the next year. And she went on to have two more little children. She brought them into the clinic and, she was holding her babies. She could attend to them. She could, you know, comb her hair. She had full function of her hands again. She could move her feet, and she had no pain. And that's probably the most special patient I've seen with chronic pain. So wow. it was it was a 
we, we really felt good about that. So. Yeah, that, that is so amazing to hear, you know, um, we, Mike and I, we've had our share of run-ins with doctors in our own personal lives. And, you know, I have to say all the doctors that we've talked to um, within this, uh, you know, series of podcasts that we've been doing have all been nothing short of amazing. You know, there's, you guys are so uh, sympathetic, so compassionate towards your patients. And um, it's been a joy speaking with you. It's been a joy speaking with all the guests that we've had from, from CRPS and, you know, Dr. Wilton, I'm so happy that you took the time to speak well, to us and to bring to light about what CRPS does, you know, and we really appreciate you. Now, for those staying tuned, um, stay tuned for ne- the next episode in the CRPS Warriors Foundation series. We're going to be talking to Dr. Gloria Tabaga, and this will be airing on May 6, 2023. And Dr. Wilton, we appreciate your time so much. And I hope you have a good day. You know, today's Friday, so maybe it's a light day for patients. I don't know. <laughs> it's the weekend. Well, I'm sitting in my living room. I'm sitting in my living room right now, so I have a lot of yard work ahead of me. So I, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come on the podcast. And uh, um, I hope uh, it was educational for those that were interested. It was for us, that's yes, for sure. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, and have fun. We love doing yard work. Yeah, we've got plenty enough out here because we got a lot of rain. <laughs> Guys, have a great weekend. Thank you so much. You, you too. too. Have a All good right, one. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mike and Phoebe Show on Alternative Twist Radio. If you missed any past episodes, just search the Mike and Phoebe Show or Alternative Twist Radio on any major podcast app. 